This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. If, you, if you've got a Bible and you want to turn to it, we are at Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who was ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with clear-headed judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Amen. Amen. Great. Thanks, Soph. Just was reflecting, I saw a survey uh, about the makeup of uh, faith or faith groups uh, in, in the world. And I was rather staggered by the figure of 33.3% of Christians, a third of the world, one in three people in the world are Christians. Now, why did that stagger me? Well, I don't know if it staggers you, but it staggers me because you think if, if a third of the world follow Jesus, if a third of the world live like Jesus, if a third of the world really, really do commit to walk like Jesus, then I think the world would be a different place. It really would be a different place. I I wrote some thoughts. If just a fraction of those who profess to follow Jesus lived sacrificial, self-giving lives, the world would be different. If lots of people quit wearing masks, if Christians quit wearing masks and had sincere love, as Paul said, the world would be different. 
What if every Christian, uh, instead of being discipled and conformed to the pattern of this world, was conformed to the image of Christ's Son? The world would be different. What if church after church was full of people marked out, as Paul says, by spiritual zeal and not apathy, by overflowing joy, not grumbling, by patience and not self-centeredness? What if Christians were devoted in love, faithful in prayer, open-hearted and generous? What if Christians loved the poor and the broken, embraced the marginalized, fed and clothed the stranger? What if the world, a 1.1 in 3 of the world, lived like Jesus? I believe the world would be a different place. The world would be a different place. And the thing is, Paul hasn't spent uh, eight chapters of Romans detailing the gospel of God, that, that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the new king in town, that he's the true God, the true Lord, who's come to earth to make sinners right with him and unite us to Christ by his spirit for it not to make a scrap of difference. He hasn't done that. He hasn't said that the gospel has come, that Jesus has come to join you to himself and join you to the Father for it not to make a scrap of difference. He hasn't written three chapters, 9, 10 and 11, unpacking God's master plan to choose for himself or people from every tribe and nation and to knit them into Israel so that the promises to given to Abraham and Israel to bless the world are come to us for the world to stay unchanged. Paul is saying, this is the time to live differently. He says, in view of God's mercy, live differently. And it feels like at this time of year, the start of the year for us, because we didn't uh, have one on the 1st of January, uh, the start of the year for us as a church, then the, the call is, guys, we have to live differently. We said if one third of the, of the, the, of the globe lived differently, the world would be different. If one third of this church, if we really live differently, if I live differently, if I live the radical life of a disciple, the world would be a different place. I know that. It says the Spirit of God goes over the earth, or the eyes of God go over earth looking for just one person who'll stand in the gap. What about? 50? What about a 100? What about a 1,000? The world should be different. And so my title this morning is Paul's Invitation to a Disciple's Life or Welcome to the Disciple's Life. Paul ends chapter 11 with this amazing flourish of worship. It's almost as if he reflects on the gospel that God has taken us who were under his judgment and and deserving of nothing but judgment and he's brought us into his family and made us his children and poured out his spirit. It's as if Paul takes all that and he bubbles over in worship. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths are beyond tracing out. Who's known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The Bible calls it a doxology, which just means like a glorious praise. Who but the only wise God could have planned such a beautiful gospel? That's what Paul's saying. The depth of the wisdom. Who could have thought about it? Who would have had God come to earth, become a man, take on the dust of the earth, the flesh of the earth, live that perfect life and die for us? Who could have thought of that? 
Who could have planned such a beautiful gospel? Who but a self-giving God could have done that and displayed such unfathomable grace, unsearchable? Who but a God of love could have taken a path to the cross? Who but a righteous and just God could have judged his son instead of us? Who but the awesome God could have conceived of such an audacious rescue mission? Who could have given to God that we could be saved? No one. But yet God has paid the price. We used to sing that old hymn, there is a green hill that says, there was no other good enough to pay, does anyone know it? The price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. What worship? Paul's like, whoa, this is amazing. For him and through him and for him are to be glory forever. What an amazing gospel. It's like Paul bursts out across the page. The true response to the gospel is worship. If you understand what Jesus has done for you, as I kind of prayed uh, after what's been said, those that are given much, forgiven much, love much. If you understand what Jesus has truly done, then you will be a worshipper. You will be a worshipper. If you struggle, if I struggle to worship God alone or in community or in church, what I need is not a better Bible reading app on my phone. Although I've got some good ones to recommend for you. I'm using one called Speak Life at the moment. It's uh, Between the Lines, it's a seven minute video where a guy just, Glenn Sriver actually, remember we came here, takes a a verse out of the Bible, reads a bit, takes a verse out of the Bible, unpacks it. And I've kept tweeting it because it's a really good starter. If you're thinking, I need to get into my Bible, it's a really good way to get going. I've done the Bible in the year with Nicky Gumbel. We've done John Piper. We do all sorts of things. But but ultimately, what what I need is not a better Bible reading app on my phone. What I don't need is a better Hillsong or Jesus Culture playlist on my Spotify What I don't need is, well, actually, really, we need a stadium-quality worship band, and then we'll be at a worship. No, what we really need to do, we need to gaze again at the gospel. Gaze again at God becoming man. Glimpse afresh at Jesus so loving and so pure. Stand again at the foot of the cross and see him crucified. Peer again into the empty tomb and see the power of the risen life. Plunge again into the waterfall of his overflowing spirit. Fall down again and worship before his throne. And be embraced again by the God who adopted us and worship. Guys, if we are going to make a difference, if we're going to live different, if we're going to live the disciples' life, we have to be first and foremost worshippers. We're not here as spectators. We're not here as consumers. We're here as worshippers. We're not here to evaluate how well Abby did, or well how I'm doing, or did I like the venue, or was it too light or too dark, or was it is there a lot of people here or not? We're not here to do that. We're here to worship. We're here to be early and engaged, enjoying it, front foot, front row, passionate, participating, committed, contributing, real and responsive. We're here to be bang. I remember we had a guy who used to lead worship with us in the early days, and he'd say, leading worship here is great. He said, it's like firework night. I said, you just have to light the touch paper, and up it goes. But sometimes you have those times of worship where it feels like, uh, I'm trying not to catch any worship leader's eyes, where it feels like, come on, everybody. 
But Paul's saying, if you know the gospel, if you know Jesus and what he's done for us, worship should just explode. The moment they go, Dum, I would like to be a worship leader, actually. You know, the moment they do that kind of, yeah, bang, we're there. Not like, oh, well, I don't know if I like this song. No, we're there. Paul explodes across the page in this doxology. And he says, but actually more than sung worship, he's got other worship in mind. He hasn't just got sung worship in mind. He hasn't just got this 20 minutes here and 20 minutes at the end in mind. He's got a life of worship in mind. He says he's got the true and proper worship in mind. The life of a disciple. You can hear Paul after the worship saying, well, if that's what God has done, this is what you should be like. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Wow. Paul doesn't just say, Come up, you know, turn up, cough up, sing up. He says, lay your life down as a living sacrifice. Put it on the altar and let it be slain. Now, when you say that, we don't, I haven't seen a sacrifice. In fact, I wouldn't like to see one. I've been watching a series called The Vikings. I must confess, I've watched my first box set. Guilt unto me. I watched the Vikings and they did this kind of pagan sacrifice where they slit the throat of this bull and it was like, oh. And it was pretty gross. But actually, if you were a Roman or a Jew sitting, in, sitting listening to Paul's letter being read out, you'd have understood sacrifice. Blood sacrifice was all around. The Forum, if you go to Rome, it's a beautiful city, isn't it? And if you go and walk through Rome, it's, it's not shops and shopping malls and theatres. It's temple, temple, temple. It's sacrifice everywhere. The Jews who probably moved to uh, Rome, maybe taken as slaves, maybe went, gone there to do commerce, they'd have perhaps recalled when Paul said sacrifice, they'd have recalled that, that moment where they first went to the temple, they'd have recalled the, maybe taking a, a sheep and tying its leg, putting their hands on it, and saying almost a prayer that all my sin go onto this lamb. I put my hands on it and I impart all my brokenness, my evil, my rebellion, I impart it to that. And then they'd pass it over to the priest and the priest would lay it on the altar and slit its throat. The blood had spurt out and they'd splatter the blood everywhere. And then they'd, they'd gut the animal and burn it. It's saying that actually this blood that needs to be shed should be mine. The death of the lamb should be mine. The, the, the body that should be burned is really should be mine. And that was the heart of their worship. That's what they did. So when Paul says, come and offer yourselves as living sacrifices, it wasn't just a nice theological concept. They understood the reality of the life and death nature of what he's saying. But actually, interestingly here, he asked for living sacrifices. Paul has already said that there's been a sacrifice. He says in Romans 3.25, Brian mentioned this, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. In other words, it turns away the judgment of God. 
through the shedding of his blood. And in Romans 5, 6, you see it just at the right time, when we were powerless, when we couldn't pay, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for this, that while we were sinners, he died for us. There has been a sacrifice, a real death sacrifice. And in view of that, that it should have been you, and now it fell upon him that now, in view of God's mercy, that it hasn't fallen on you, the judgment hasn't fallen on you, that Christ has died, the true worshipper, the true sacrifice, the true high priest, the true temple, he's died that we might live. In view of that mercy, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, always good to quote him at the start of the year. In fact, the the quote's so long I couldn't even fit his uh, picture on. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who uh, died actually uh, in the Second World War in a a German concentration camp, wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, which is worth a read. He says this, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ-suffering that every disciple must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is the dying of the old nature, which is the result of, of his encounter with Christ, the disciples' encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins, he says. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion journey, at the beginning of our year with Christ. When Christ calls a man or woman, he bids him come and die. You think, oh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, don't. I just want want a nice life. I want an easy life. Come and die, please. The interesting thing is, very rarely does God ask us to lay down our life in one moment. It does happen. It happened to 11, sorry, 10 out of the 11 disciples. Judas obviously killed himself. They all paid in one moment, laid down their life, all died for their faith. More and more Christians in the world are dying for their faith. Not dying in crazy, zealous martyrdom with false ideas of paradise, but dying saying, no, I am a Christ follower. I will not renounce him. And they're dying. But most of us, that will not be how we're asked to die. How we're asked to die is to pour out our life a little every day. To take a small part of our life and pour it out each day to Christ. To say no to self in those moments where self cries out to be worshipped. To say no to comfort and ease and the Cheltenham shape of life. To say no each day and pour it out. To live a holy life and not a worldly life. To live a life that pleases God and not conformed to the pattern of this world. Every day, those choices are there. Every day, those moments come. Will you serve yourself or will you give yourself away? Will you love yourself or will you love the poor? Will you share the gospel or will you sit on your bum 
and watch a box set of Vikings. I had a time of retreat this week, so if I'm slightly in your face, I do apologise. But um, I read a book called The Disciple-Making Pastor by a guy called Bill Hull. He hits you between the eyes. He says the evangelical church, that would be ours, Bible-believing church, is weak, self-indulgent, and superficial. It has been thoroughly discipled by its culture. Regardless of our nodding assent to the importance of Christian growth, our passions lay elsewhere. We have sacrificed the poured out life of a disciple on the altar of shallow success and self-gratification. I think, Bill, stop. Shallow success and self-gratification. Growing in Christ, but my passions lie elsewhere. Paul's urgent call is not just for a few super keen Christians. It's not, Steve, in view of you being considered for eldership, lay your life down as a living sacrifice. Well, the rest of you all just get off scot-free. Now, the appeal is to all of us. I urge you, God first, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I thought about this and prayed about it, and I thought, what's discipling me? Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. The world is discipling us. All the time, the world is discipling us. All the time, the world is teaching us how we should live. Here's just a few pictures, just a prompt. Who's discipling you this year? Is social media discipling you? My football team are doing quite well at the moment, so I found myself hashtag LUFC on Twitter far too often. And I looked before Christmas and I saw that I'd spent, I'm not even going to tell you, I'm ashamed. I'd spent a ridiculous amount of time on Twitter. But yeah, I'm thinking I've got a stack of books and a stack of stuff, not work, but stuff to feed my soul, and I just hadn't done it. You know, you're thinking about starting the year with your Bible. And I'm thinking, I'm leading this church, Howard. I should be having a lot more time here and a lot less time on that. The thing about social media, it's not real. It's not the real world. They're not real relationships. The lives you see there are just a little snapshot. They're just a little buffed up version of the life that you think that you should be living. When you see everybody's great pictures from New Year, you think, well, I had a rubbish New Year. You know, when you see everybody's great college pictures about what they're doing, you think, my life at college is quite mundane. When you see all the wonderful holidays and weekends away, you think, really? What's my life like? But it disciples you to think, I've got to chase pleasure. I've got to chase this gorgeous life. Whereas actually the Bible says, look and see and lay down your life. The biggest challenge. Are we longing and planning for that long weekend away? Me and Nays had our 25th wedding anniversary. 
And I, I feel quite proud of myself because I booked into the cheapest room. She's out on kids' work, so she, she doesn't know. I booked into the cheapest room, and then in that little box at the bottom I put, it's my 25th wedding anniversary. If you can give me a nice room at this price break, I'd be most grateful. When we checked in, we got the best room in the hotel. And the little card that says, Mr. and Mrs. Kelly, happy 25th wedding anniversary, two chocolates. And I thought... Uh, that's a Yorkshireman's success, isn't it? <laughs> but I thought, what, what's discipling me this year? Is it my longing for that great weekend away? Is my thought of being here with you bunch? I know I do it for my job, but I used to go to church when, when it wasn't my job, and I used to enjoy coming. You know, <laughs> I still enjoy coming. <laughs> Man, I need to hurry up. Um, but, you know, is, is your life really, is the focus of your Google searching really, I want that next piece of golf equipment, I want that next technology, I want that next weekend away. Is that really the planning and longings of your life? Or are you saying, I long for the world to be changed, I long for disciples to be made, I long for a broken world to find Jesus, I long for the church to be built, I long to be with God's people. What's discipling you, the cross or the long weekend? Bill Hill again. Oh, I'm really going to bang it home here. You're going to be in tears at the end. <laughs> Jesus, take my life. Bill Hill again. Oh, dear. The Western Christians' desire to have everything now, from a car to garden furniture, works against a meaningful Christian life. The Western Christian, by their inability to keep commitments, under the pressure to maintain their preferred lifestyle, evidence their dedication to comfortable materialism. The fact we don't show, we don't do it, we don't give to the poor, we don't share with the broken, that we don't invite the vulnerable into our homes, is testament of my commitment, of your commitment to comfortable materialism. The key to a life of a disciple is to delay gratification. As I was praying, I just thought God would say, what does your diary and your bank statement say about your commitment to Jesus. But how are we going to do this? If I left it there, you'd be thinking, oh man, this isn't very helpful. But Paul says, no, there's something to embrace that's going to help you get this done. There's something to embrace that's going to help you to get this done. Paul points to the power of community. These verses are full of community. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but with clear, sober judgment. Though you are one body, we're, we all have a body and we belong and we understand its members. And it says, so in Christ, though we are many, we form one body. And each member belongs to one another. Love must be sincere. Be devoted to one another. In love, honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal. Be keeping your spiritual further and serve the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people in need. Practice hospitality. Paul is saying that if you want to walk this Christian life, if you want to live radically, if you want to be uh, never lacking in zeal and full of spiritual fervour and faithful in prayer, patient in affliction, then you need to be knitted into a Christian community. 
Not just a community that comes for 20 minutes, God first and here's the sermon, but a community that says, no, we share life together. Christian community is not the small print. It's part of the gospel invitation. To be part of God's people is to be part of the body, the bride that Christ died for. It's not that you belong to God and then decide, I'll find a church to work that out. When you're born again, you, you are part of the church. To detach yourself from church is like, well, you know, are you really doing it? To be united to be, is to be part of his body. To be united to those who are united to him. Being a Christian is a community reality. Christian community is not optional if you're going to live the life of disciple. If you come and go and see no one, know no one, you will not get it done. It's interesting though that Paul talks about pride. I think pride and the flip side of that, self-pity, are often the big enemies of community. The community is, is not built... Uh, by disciples that are self-appointed experts on every spiritual matter. You know the sort of ones that come to your group, you probably think, oh, that's me. But they come to your group and they've got far too much to say and never listen. Slack self-awareness, but always want to tell you how it's done. Don't think of yourself better than you ought, Paul says. That doesn't get community done. But also the sad thing is that, that those who struggle with their insecurities, those who've got real need, those who don't see themselves as with sober judgment as, as sons and daughters of Christ, sons and daughters of God, but see themselves as rubbish and struggling with their insecurities and struggling with their needs. You know what happens is they don't get in community. The very people that need community, where they're going to see their lives transformed, are always the ones detached. Don't be too proud to learn from community. Don't be so falsely humble you don't connect to community. You've got to share life together. Paul says, practice hospitality. You've got to share life together. You've got to allow others into your life. Disciples share meals and time together. They build those bridges of love that allow people to speak the truth to you, to say, you know, Howard, I just observe... And you know, here we go. But somebody's better have that permission to say to me, not just Mrs. Kelly, she does that anyway, that came with a package. But there's got to be somebody who can say, I just observe and tell you the gospel truth. Your life isn't holy. It's not pleasing to God. But don't just come out of the left field and don't know me and don't love me and don't share life with me and bang that on me. Let's share life together. Who's in your life? Whose life are you in where you can do that? That's why at God First we've only got two programs. We have G1 communities, God First communities, and threes. The aim of that is so that you will know and be known. Love and be loved. Challenge and be challenged. You're never going to make it. If you have fake community and you're spending your community time in TV and Facebook and this and that and the other, no, you need to be in real community with real people because then they'll stir your spiritual fervor. Then they'll stir you to faith. Then you'll never be lacking in zeal. Then you'll serve the Lord. One of the most powerful moments in the G1C that my wife Naomi leads was this year when one of the couples in the group had had some tragic news. And they were sat outside in their car uh, as we pulled up. And then I I thought they were going to go home. You could tell something bad had happened. I thought they were going to go home. 
But they came in and they sat on Josh and Yana's sofa. And we started the evening, usually, well, you know, how's everybody, how's it going? And they, they explained this, this, this news. And they said this, and it was one of the sweetest things that was said this year. They said, you know, normally would have gone home and closed the door with such news and handled our emotions together. But they cried a little bit and they said, but it just feels so right for us to be here with you and share our news. Paul puts it like this, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And let me just land this with one more bit. If we're going to form real community of real disciples, then we've got to use what God's given us. We've got to use real gifts. Paul has a list of gifts. You can find different lists of gifts in Corinthians, elsewhere in the Bible. But Paul has these gifts, and some of them seem very spiritual, and some of them don't seem very spiritual at all. But hey, guys, they're all spiritual. They're all spiritual. There's not some hierarchy here. Leading, well, that's very spiritual. Encouraging others, that's pretty average. No. These are spiritual things. This is what we're to do, people. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy according with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's leading, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. God first, I believe we're, we're doing okay. I'd love us to be three, four, five, ten times the size, but still keep our commitment to real relationships and real community. I don't, and I hope that the product of real relationships is not just a product of our size. Guys, as we get bigger, let's keep knowing people. Let's keep welcoming people. I just want to say some thank yous. I want to go through this gift and say thank you. I want to say thank you to the 73% who serve on Sunday rotors. That's brilliant. But thank you for those that serve and meet the needs of our community when it's not on a rotor. When it's nothing to do with Sunday. When I, when I heard that somebody had arranged to cook some meals for someone in the church who was having a tough time. They're just a different person was just going to go. They hadn't had a baby, you know, we do that. It was just like, oh wow, let's just help this Thank you for those who do that. When you serve faithfully, when you keep your commitments, you show that you're not a disciple of comfort and ease. Guys, we need to serve. When the, ch- when the opportunity to come serve, please don't ring me up and say, can the church do something? You are the church. Let's serve. When we serve and keep our commitments faithfully, we show that we're not disciples of comfort and ease and Facebook and box sets. Thank you for those who show the gift of hospitality, who warmly welcome. I'm just going to say, Abby Kang. The reason why we asked Abby Kang to do this job is because she's great at it. But she doesn't do this job welcoming visitors so all you lot can just talk to each other. She does that to model, that's what it's like. Welcome strangers, that's what hospitality means. Thank you for those that cook food. Thank you for those that woke people into their homes. Thank you for those that do it on a rotor. Thank you for the people that don't do it on a rotor. Thank you for the people that say, come round, and they facilitate real community. Thank you. 
When you practice hospitality, you live out the gospel as a disciple. You say, I welcome you as Christ has welcomed me. Thank you for those that give. 60% of the people in this church give faithfully and regularly, week by week, month by month. That's great. They do it without thought of return. They lay it at Christ's feet and say, this is for you. As a church, we want to give more. We're looking to grow our giving away towards 20%. That means my giving's got to grow towards 20%. It might means your giving's got to grow towards 20% if you're joining us, if you're with us in this. When you give sacrificially, when you lay your money out there, when, not, not when you've got, I mean, some of us have got little and some of us have got loads and there's a whole sermon on the widow's might. But, what, but it's not about the amount, but when you give sacrificially, you say that actually God is on the throne of your life and not your cash. Encouragement, that's a great gift. Paul hunting. I'm going to embarrass him. I'm not going to embarrass many, but I just thought as I was thinking about Paul Hunting's got a great gift of encouragement. Actually, Gary as well. Gary. You're all now all thinking, why don't you mention me? Stop it. <laughs> Those moments where they strengthen, where somebody comes and he puts their arm around you and not just says you did a great sermon, but somebody puts their arm around you, Paul and Gary do this and say, you just really served us well. You did great tea. You were, thank you for standing in the rain. Thank you for putting up with Howard's grumpiness when we moved the flags eight times on that Sunday morning when we were in that. You know, thank you. Those people that encourage, that they put strength and encouragement and comfort and they're precious. There's not just two. Actually, we do that. That's what we should do. They, you know, the problem people's experience of churches, you know, and I just like to go and have a good moan with everyone. They say, oh, I've been to church and I've been damaged and hurt. What about I've been to church and someone has put that arm around me, strengthened, encouraged me and loved me? More of that, please. What about the gift of teaching? I believe we're well taught. We've got a team of eight men and women at the moment who preach on Sunday mornings. And I know that when they get a precious slot on the diary, I know that I get lots of slots, but when they get a precious slot on the rotor, I know the hours of time and prayer and honouring scripture they do to serve you well. People say, why don't you get more guest speakers in? I think, we have got great preachers here. But thank you for those that, that actually facilitate Bible studies, facilitate sharing gospel truth with people in, in, in life. Thank you for those that, 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 that in their three, they just say, oh, I just, I think this is, the Bible's saying this for you. This is your situation. What about that? What about that? What, those moments when we teach each other? Thank you for that. Every time one of you speaks the truth of the gospel to help shape and form the life of another, that's disciple making. Thank you. Disciple making is teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. It's not a rod to beat people with. It's a cloak to embrace them in. There's a couple more that I think we need to grow in. Nearly done. Mercy. If your gift is mercy, do it cheerfully. Every church needs people with the gift of mercy. Now, the gift of mercy is, is that gift that means that when somebody's sick and in hospital, uh, you go and visit them and they feel blessed. Now, but there are people and you just know that mercy flows out of them. I mean, I do care and I do have compassion, but when I put myself against somebody who's got mercy gift, I think, ah, that's what mercy looks like. 
Because they notice the poor and the broken. They notice the vulnerable. They notice the person standing on the edge. They know the person who's got no friends. And they say, come on, let me love you. Let me care for you. Let me knit you in. They say no to an easy life. No to a comfortable life and say, let me stand up for you. We need people with mercy who are going to say, well, come on, God, first, what are we doing about the poor? I feel a hypocrite when I talk about it. Because I feel I don't know what to do. But some of you with mercy do. And I want to follow you. And we want to follow you to go to those places where we can love the lost and broken. It's great that Sarah's involved with family space. It's great that we've got, we touch cap and we're involved with other things. But there's more God first. Some of you have got a mercy gift. Some of you got a leadership. Please stand up and lead. Prophecy, let me just say that one. What's prophecy? Prophecy is that speaking of a revelation or insight from the heart of God for building up God's people. It's when, when the prophetic words are really working in the church, when God's really speaking, you get that moment that Paul describes says, God is truly in this place. Now, let me just make a caveat here. Sometimes people are prophetic think the best way to be prophetic is I'll be a bit weird and I'll put on a weird voice and I'll go, oh, my people, oh, 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 oh. You know, okay, but, but that tends to weird me out. Doesn't tend to make me think God's in the house. But when somebody comes there like Paul and brings something down to earth in a way they think God is here. Those moments when somebody speaks a word into your life that opens it up. Paul says that's what we want. That builds up the church. Prophetic types. You need to be in community. You really do. I've, I, I, people used to say I was a prophetic type, maybe because I was just weird. But you need to be in community. Prophetic types don't, if you're out on a limb, that, that, that is not the New Testament way. The Old Testament way of a voice crying in the wilderness. No, the, the New Testament way is a friend speaking gently in your ear. But we need that. They need to be in community. Prophetic types need to be discipled. Because the hardest thing is if you come here or you pray for somebody and you say, well, well, do you, they say, this is from God. And you go, whoa. And then, you, they, and then you, they say, actually, I don't think it was from God. That's hard, isn't it? You kind of smile to thank you. But you know, it says in the Bible, we've got to weigh it up. Is it on beam? Is it biblical? Is it wacky? But if it is from God, let's embrace it. It says, do not treat prophecy with contempt. There's a walk to walk here, people. We walk it in community together. But let's listen to God. We believe in a God who speaks. Let's listen to him. When we open our Bible on our own, let's not just go through and say, I've ticked the box now, I've done my reading. No, you open it up and you say, God, speak to me now. Tell me what this has got in this for me. That tells me of you, that tells me what I need to change, that tells me, leads me into doxology, leads me into worship, that leads me maybe into something to say to the church. That's how we open our Bible. We believe that God speaks and that we should listen and then we should test what we hear and hold on to what is good, that the church might be built. And lastly, if your gift is leadership, do it diligently. I just want to thank everybody that leads. 
Tom Foster, are you here? Tom Foster leads our production team. We're going to clap everyone at the end, okay? Rather than Tom, thank you. Who leads our welcome team? Abby, thank you. You've had a two, so you've had too many. <laughs> Who does tea and coffee? Kobe, thank you. Who leads our worship team? Andy, thank you. Abby, thank you for leading. Flick. Who leads the kids' work? Lucy, thank you. Helen, thank you for serving. Who leads groups? Tom and Lucy, thank you for leading a group. Naomi, thank her. If you're in a group, thank her for leading a group. Steve and Joanna. Mark and Sophie. Andy, Vic, Tom and Florence. (laughs) Tom and Florence. Thank people that lead groups. Thank people that lead in those different areas. Thank your elders. Thank Tom. Thank Andy. Thank me. Please thank me. (laughs) Let's just put our hands together and thank those people that serve. If you serve in any way... The gift of leadership is that gift that guards and guides and governs. And the gift of leadership is not about standing at the front and saying, I'm great. The gift of leadership is about saying, this is what living sacrifice looks like. Come join. Come join. That's what you're all called into. Let me finish by reading. Let's read it together. Starting from 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Go on, one more. Let's keep going. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing, perfect will. Father, we thank you that you laid down, you sent your son. Jesus, we thank you that you came, that you lived the poured out life. You scorned the ease and the comfort. You weren't conformed to the pattern of this world, but you brought an image of a new kingdom, a new way of living. I thank you that you willingly laid down your life. I thank you that your body was broken, that you were the sacrifice once and for all so that we did not need to die. Thank you that your blood was shed. But Lord, we hear your call this morning to come and die. We hear your call to lay down our lives in community, delighting it together, using our gifts so the world would be a different place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. 
a community of Jesus followers worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Thank you.